But that's what was in my head. If anything went wrong, this is exactly where I am now. Like if I let my paddle slip out of my hand, if it broke, if I had some freak muscle spasm or cramp, <laughs> I'm going over to Niagara Falls. That is RCGS Explorer-in-Residence Adam Schultz describing a hair-raising portage around Niagara Falls, part of his epic 3,400-kilometer canoe and hiking journey from his backyard near Long Point on Lake Erie all the way to the Arctic Ocean in northern Quebec. He's our guest on this second episode of our summer canoe series on Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us a photo and description of where you're listening to this podcast. You can share it with us on social media. Tag us at Cangio, at McGuffin David, and hashtag Explore Podcast. Or you can email us at explorecanadiangeographic.ca. We'll share your feedback on future episodes. If you haven't listened to episode one of our Summer Canoe series featuring Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, go back and check that out where you listen. It's a fascinating conversation into how canoeing has shaped him into the person and leader he is. And there's a lot of great descriptions of rivers and lakes around this country that he's paddled. There's a video version on Canadian Geographic's YouTube channel. And of course, you can listen wherever you're listening now. I also want to let you know that on November 29th, Adam Schultz will be appearing in person for a Cangio talk in the Alex Trebek Theatre at RCGS headquarters, 50 Sussex Drive in Ottawa. He'll be reading from and signing copies of his new book, Where the Falcon Flies, a 3,400-kilometer odyssey from my doorstep to the Arctic. You can find more information about tickets at the Canadian Geographic website, canadiangeographic.ca. This is our fourth interview with Adam on this podcast. They're always among our most popular episodes, so definitely go back and check previous ones in our free archives. They're all great canoe-focused conversations with lots of action and drama. Adam Schultz, welcome to the Explore podcast. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. Always happy to hear about your latest adventure. And this one, uh, I love it for a bunch of reasons, but I love it because it kind of starts right in your own backyard. I know you plan your trips very carefully, but this one almost felt like it was the pandemic and you're like, screw it, and you loaded your canoe on your head and portage down to Lake Erie and took off, <laughs> which I know isn't the case. So what, what was the germ of this journey from Lake Erie up to the Arctic? Well, you're not that far off. It was, compared to any other expedition I have done, much more off the cuff and spontaneous. Um, it was April a few years ago, and I was literally looking out my front porch, and I saw a peregrine falcon fly across the cornfield on the other side of the road. This is in Norfolk County in southernmost Ontario, uh, only about a kilometer from Lake Erie. So it's Canada's deep south. And when I saw that falcon, um, I felt instantly transported back to the Arctic because when I was canoeing in the Arctic, I would see many nesting peregrine falcons. Uh, every spring, falcons migrate thousands of kilometers from southern Canada and beyond to the Canadian Arctic where they will make nests on sheer cliffs, lay their eggs, and then by the end of the summer, when the eggs have hatched and they're big enough, they fly south. Um, so in that moment, almost spontaneously, I thought, ah, oh, you know, it's in southernmost Canada, the Arctic can feel impossibly far away and unconnected to anything local. But I was thinking, oh, migratory birds, this is fascinating. It's a reminder of how interconnected uh, wild places truly are, even our front yards in some cases, to the most distant regions of the Arctic. 
So I thought, why not get my backpack and my canoe and start a journey right from my doorstep to the Arctic, thousands of kilometers away. All I have to do, I thought to myself, is portage my canoe um, from the front porch uh, to the uh, lake shore there, Lake Erie, and then from there, if I can get through the Great Lakes, I can work my way north all the way up to the Arctic coast, and with any luck, I can find a falcon uh, nesting up there on the Arctic, and it'll sort of tie it together. And I thought, you know, what a, what a unique opportunity to witness uh, firsthand the geography of Canada and the transitions between different ecoregions or ecozones, from the Carolinian forest right in the deep south Arctic tundra in the north. So that was the idea I came up with. Now, uh, it didn't quite go exactly like that. That was um, spring of 2020. And then this little thing called the COVID pandemic happened, which you may have heard of. And that put everything on hold. And I actually didn't go because of that reason, because it was like basically stay at home and all the rest of it. And two years ended up passing. And I just sort of forgot about it, put it out of my mind, moved on. I became a parent uh, with the birth of my first child. And I did other expeditions. I wrote a book, uh, The Whisper on the Night Wind. I did other things. And I thought, you know, that that was an idea I had spontaneously a couple years ago. And it'll just remain an idea, a hypothetical expedition that will never actually happen. And then it was uh, my wife, Alexandria, she said, no, if you don't do that, it's probably going to haunt you forever. You should go. It's now or never. Um, so just last spring in April, I decided <laughs> here the falcons are back. The snow has melted. The ice is gone from the lake. There is a falcon. And the old feeling uh, kindled up inside of me of wanderlust and adventure. So I grabbed my canoe on April 24th of last spring, 2022, put it in the water, and I set off. Uh, for the Arctic on a 3,400 kilometer journey. Yeah. So tell me, I mean, your starting point is Lake Erie and you live quite close to Lake Erie. So what, uh, where, where are you embarking from? And, and I'm fascinated too, because lake travel, especially Great Lake travel is a very different beast than a lot of the, the paddling you do, I think, in sort of rivers and lakes in Northern Canada. So I'm just wondering, A, just the being on basically an inland sea, what that paddling experience is like. And then of course you're in the most densely populated part of Canada, really, too. Yeah, there was a whole set of challenges I had never faced before. Despite doing an almost 4,000-kilometer solo canoe journey across the Canadian Arctic, uh, the Great Lakes was a new dimension for me with a lot of unique challenges that you wouldn't find in a remote or wilderness setting. But yeah, I portaged about a kilometer down to the lakeshore right at Long Point. Um, For people who aren't familiar with Long Point, it's kind of like the unofficial birding capital of Canada. Over 400 different species of birds have been recorded there. Uh, It's a migration hotspot. So every spring and fall, uh, you'll have thousands of birds passing over the area, including peregrine falcons, uh, tundra swans, sandhill cranes, and many other birds that make their journeys all the way up to the Arctic. So it's a perfect spot for thinking about these connections that exist between, you know, lush Carolinian forest in southernmost Ontario and the Arctic tundra. So that's where I started from, just a short portage with my canoe right down to the lake shore. And I set off right from uh, Long Point. If you ever go to Long Point, there's the Old Cut Lighthouse. And that was right near where I put my boat in the water on the 24th of April. So when I set off, I didn't really plan the logistics of this journey 
as carefully as I would have for some of my other ones, partly because when I thought about it, I said, oh, man, this is a nightmare. Um, it's yeah. private property almost all the way along this lake. Where will I camp? You know, I'm going to be in places like the greater Toronto area, Toronto, Hamilton, Kingston, Montreal. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I started to think, you know, are there campgrounds? Well, most of them aren't even open until at least the May long weekend. I'm starting off in April. And eventually I just said, oh, enough of it. <laughs> I'm just throwing this out the window. I'm just going to do this like an old-fashioned adventure, just go and wherever I end up, I end up. I'm not going to have an exact plan. I'll yeah. just go with it and whatever comes across my path, I'll make the best of the situation. So I set off. The winds were light. The day was warm. The leaves weren't out on the trees yet, but everything looked favorable. And my plan was just to follow the north shore of Lake Erie paddle as long as I could until it got dark and then land on the shore and set up tent, make camp. Uh, but Lake Erie, I mean, anyone who has experience with it will tell you, oh, you, you really shouldn't be canoeing on that in April yeah. when the water temperature is still icy. Uh, it's a notorious lake, even along, among you know, larger boats. It's got a real fearsome reputation. Of all the Great Lakes, it's the shallowest. Right. Average depth is only about 62 feet, which makes it something un, some, somewhat unpredictable. Storms pick up quickly with very little warning. And because it's so shallow, um, it can, I mean, you can have huge storm surges, like 15 feet or high. The water can come in, Port Dover, uh, floods pretty regularly, as I know from mm -hmm. having lived in Norfolk County. So yeah, that was a challenge. And all things considered, I think I got off pretty, pretty lightly. There were a few storms that uh, pinned me down on shore. And when I got pinned on shore, I would just have to wait for the, the white caps to subside before yeah. I could continue. The hardest part was actually not Mother Nature. It was all the human obstacles that have been erected along the lakeshore. Mm -hmm. uh, the big piers that have been built, some of them go more than a kilometer off uh, from the wow. mainland. Um, industrial piers, things like that at Nanakoke, uh, where there's an oil refinery. And uh, at Port Coburn, that's where I ran into a little bit of trouble. Uh, Port Coburn is near the eastern end of the lake, so the prevailing winds have 100 kilometers of open water to gather force over. So even a relatively light onshore wind is often enough, enough to generate considerable swells, especially if you're in a 15-foot canoe. And when I reached uh, Port Coburn, I was not anticipating the break wall there. I thought the break wall would just be some rocks dumped into the lake. Uh, but no, it's actually a concrete barrier, like a vertical concrete wall. Wow. And with waves slamming into a concrete wall, it's almost like a wave pool at a, an amusement park. It creates a ricochet effect. Um, so now you're being hit from both directions, the incoming wave and then the outgoing wave when it hits the wall. And of course, it's a death trap. If you swamp your canoe of capsize, um, if you're you know, on a natural shoreline, well, you can swim to shore and get to a beach, get to a rock or something and, and get out mm -hmm. of the water. But with a concrete vertical wall, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, if you go in the water, you're in serious trouble. So it was about three or four days uh, after I set off from Long Point when I reached Port Coburn, and the weather had turned quite nasty. It was actually a, a snowstorm, uh, late April snow. Uh, so wow. temperatures were freezing. There were some pretty sizable swells. I was inside the harbor, and then I had to cut. I had no choice but to cut through the commercial shipping lane uh, because at Port Coburn is the entrance to the Welland Canal, the Welland Canal having been constructed to bypass Niagara Falls. So that's where the big mm -hmm. freighters, those giant freighters, um, enter and exit the canal. And uh, doing my journey, I had no choice but to go through the same shipping lane. So I sort of looked both ways, made sure the coast was clear, that there was no oncoming freighter, because yeah. obviously in a little tiny canoe, they're not going to be able to spot you, especially in the falling snow. They have big blind spots. Then I canoed as fast as I could, 
and I had to get around the brake wall because if you look at a satellite image, if you go on Google Earth, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. This brake wall runs more than a kilometer offshore, and it forms kind of like a T-shape um, to protect the town as well as the entrance of the canal from Lake Erie's massive storms, like it's really powerful, destructive storms. So I had to round this brake wall, and I'm more than a kilometer, I think more like 1.5 kilometers from dry land now, from shore, dealing with these big waves, dealing with the snow. Basically feels like you're on a roller coaster when these waves hit you. You go up and down, and it's a little bit nerve-wracking to be so far from land. I mean, I could see the distant shore and the white taps breaking there, and I had to paddle all the way back in, which I did, thankfully, safely, obviously, because here I am talking to you, and land on shore. Yeah. So when the weather was really rough, I would actually wait on shore and not take my chances paddling. Um, but I was pretty lucky in that regard. Sort of bringing back images, too, of being in those shipping lanes of uh, Paddle to the Sea, for those of us who remember that movie. When he, when he hits the Great Lakes, those big tankers, those big... Yeah, yeah. They, are, they were one of my most... Uh, my biggest challenges I faced was the commercial shipping traffic, uh, especially at Montreal, which is one of Canada's busiest ports. I mean, the, the port complex at Montreal, the commercial port, stretches over 10 kilometers of shoreline. It's, it's wow. incredible. Yeah. And it's just so busy. There can be at any one time, as I discovered in my little canoe, uh, a dozen or more of those freighters coming and going. And they, re they move surprisingly fast for such a gigantic ship. I mean, the biggest of those freighters can be a thousand feet long. And yeah. the bridge is like the height of a, a skyscraper. It's like 10 or 11 stories high. Yeah. And what I saw at Montreal, as well as elsewhere, is that they're, they're loaded with shipping crates. Like there were always like cranes um, loading shipping crates onto them, and they'll, mm. they'll stack those crates like five high, which, if anything, only increases the blind spot. So right. they, just, uh, they sort of assume that no one is stupid enough to paddle through a shipping lane in yeah. a little tiny kayak or a canoe because it's so low to the water, uh, you're hardly visible. And, of course, under ordinary circumstances, you would never want to do something like that. But having mm -hmm. resolved to paddle um, from my doorstep to the Arctic, I really didn't have much of a choice at Montreal, I tried to avoid them as much as I could, but with all of the commercial traffic there, not right. only the freighters coming and going, but you have Coast Guard ships, you have tugboats, and you have passenger ferries cutting back across the river. Uh, it was a real challenge. I mean, at one point, I was paddling so hard, I felt like my lungs were going to burst when I had to cut across a shipping lane. Yeah. I had to do a couple times um, to get away from the, the port facilities because I didn't want to go along the concrete wall there where the freighters are coming and going. I wanted to get over to the other side of the river, but then I had to come back because, of course, what they call the north shore of the river, but anyone looking at the map would say that's the west side, but whatever. Mm. Um, I had to be on that side to actually go north of the Arctic. And, of course, um, when it gets dark, I can't paddle. It's too dangerous. So I actually spent one night sleeping underneath the Jacques Cartier Bridge. In Montreal. In Montreal, which yeah. turned out to be a wonderful campsite. If you're ever uh, stranded in Montreal, I highly, highly recommend <laughs> sleeping underneath the Jacques Cartier Bridge. I had to do something similar yeah. in Hamilton where a storm, a storm picked up, huge yeah. whitecaps. They pinned me down uh, right at the Burlington Skyway. So I spent a night sleeping underneath the Burlington Skyway as well. Right. Um, just dealing with, you know, storms on the Great Lakes. When they pick up, it's incredible how powerful they can be, right? Any, I mean, lakes that can sink um, freighters and ocean-going ships can easily sink a canoe. So yeah. at times I had no choice. It's like, okay, well, we're going to be sleeping under this bridge tonight. And I can tell you, having got through the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes, I was like 
just looking forward to the wilderness. I'd be like, I was longing for the simpler time when all I had to worry about was canoeing with polar bears. Yeah, I, no I just can't get to wait to get to the wilderness. And there are other hazards as well. Hydroelectric dams. There are numerous hydroelectric dams on the St. Lawrence River before, between Cornwall and Montreal. So that was another hazard. You obviously don't want to get sucked into a hydro dam. Uh, but also just like barbed wire uh, fencing when I'd be portaging around stuff. Had to portage around Niagara Falls, uh, just trying to get over fences, getting across highways. Sometimes there's busy roads and things. You've got a 15-foot yeah. canoe. You've got to portage it across. Uh, and then there were other days where I'd just be paddling along either Lake Ontario or the St. Lawrence River. And it'd be getting dark. I'd be ready to call it a night. But I'd be like, there's nowhere I can land. Uh, the shoreline for miles and miles is nothing but artificial. It's all yeah. break walls or people's backyards. And they've put you know, steel barriers in to prevent erosion which means I can't land a canoe. So it's like I have no choice but to keep going until I find a spot where I can pitch my tent for the night. So mm. all those things made me actually look forward to the wilderness section of my journey when I get to yeah. Labrador. Be like, oh, that's going to be a relief. Uh, <laughs> all the familiar hazards and dangers of the wilderness, that'll be relatively simple compared to canoeing in heavy, dense urban areas. I mean, I spent one night sleeping, actually two nights, uh, sleeping within the city of Toronto, uh, which presented its own challenges. Yeah, let's get to that. Uh, so your very first portage, though, and you mentioned it in passing there, was, was Niagara Falls. Is that right? Uh, yes, unless you count some of the time I was stormbound on yeah. the coast of Lake Erie. But yes, I had to get around Niagara Falls. That was the route I dreamed up. I thought, well, all I have to do from Long Point is canoe a couple hundred kilometers along Lake Erie. If I can get to the Niagara River, I can yeah. go right down the Niagara River. The current will be in my favor, so that's a bonus. It'll carry me along. I go right under the Peace Bridge, past yeah. Fort Erie, past Chippewa, all the way down there. And there's a notable waterfall, and I figured, well, I'll just land above it, above the Horseshoe Falls, and then portage around it. Yeah. Uh, then once I get beyond the Whirlpool Rapids at Queenston, I can put my canoe back in the water and paddle the rest of the way. So that was the plan I came up with. Um, it was a relief. I remember I felt very relieved when I could see uh, the skyscrapers of Buffalo on, yeah. the, on the New York shore because I'm like, oh, Lake Erie through. <laughs> a lot of challenges at me and I'm just relieved to be getting off of Lake Erie and it wasn't long before I rounded the bend there at Fort Erie and I could feel the current I mean there's a really strong current in the mouth of the Niagara River there I yeah. see it from the mainland it, the current is pretty rip roaring so as soon as I rounded the bend the current carried me uh, very very s quickly towards the Peace Bridge right and I had heard through the grapevine that like canoeing under the peace bridge is not recommended because the current there is said to be dangerous. Yeah. So I was a little bit apprehensive, but I had worked out a foolproof plan ahead of time, which was like, I'm not just going to blindly canoe under the peace bridge. I'll land on shore, secure my canoe and then walk ahead on foot just to make sure that there's nothing dangerous. Yeah. Um, that's what I'll do. Uh, but it turned out there was a wrench in this otherwise fine plan, which is as I approached Peace Bridge, I realized I cannot land on shore. There is no shore. They've built, con they've built like concrete walls here, stone walls all along the river. The Niagara Parks Commission has. So these vertical walls mean that there's no way to actually land. Now I'm stuck. I have no choice with a current this strong. I'm just going to have to go under the Peace Bridge and, and hope for the best. Right. Now, luckily, as I approached the Peace Bridge, I did see that there was some whitewater rapids there. And it's true. If you drive over the bridge when uh -huh. you're going to Buffalo, just look over the side and you can see there's a really strong current. And there's actually this big icebreaker, uh, this concrete icebreaker in the middle of the river. And it looks for all the world like a submarine about to um, go under the water. But it's an mm -hmm. icebreaker that's built there for the winter because there's a tremendous amount of ice that can do 
extraordinary damage and the breaker is put there to try to break up the ice. You can actually watch videos online of what the ice looks like in spring. Um, it's incredible, like how powerful the ice is there. But anyways, I saw there was some rapids, so I shifted down to my knees to make the canoe a little more stable. I had my sunglasses on, but even with the polarized lenses, it was a sunny day, and it was hard to see what was actually under there. I didn't want to slam into one of the bridge pillars, so I was kind of sticking to the left, but I could see that there were some rocks, so I didn't want to go too close. Uh, went through the rapids, and then luckily I realized that although the current under the bridge is strong, um, it's not rough, and it was actually very easy to go under it. So I found that the Peace Bridge, despite its fearsome reputation, right. uh, was pretty elementary, that there was nothing hard there to handle. So I raced down under the Peace Bridge, and then not far beyond that is a second bridge, a train bridge uh, links Canada to the U.S. I, I zoomed under that one yeah. and kept going. Now, as you go beyond that, the river actually widens out. It gets very wide. The current is minimal. Hmm. Um, there's almost no current whatsoever along the shoreline in that section. And if you want to catch the current, uh, you would have to paddle almost out to the middle of the river where the international boundary is. I thought, as it was, best to stay close to shore. Yeah. I passed Grand Island, which is a big island uh, belonging to the United States. And then beyond that uh, is where I could see this plume of mist in the distance and start yeah. to hear this distant rumble like thunder. And that's when your heart starts to beat a little faster. Yeah, no kidding. You know, that's, that's Niagara Falls down there. So <laughs> by this point, you know, that's like 20 kilometers or so from Lake Erie. And I had actually camped at Crystal Beach uh, the night before. Um, Crystal Beach at that time was deserted. It's mostly all American cottagers. But mm-hmm. that area, that early in the year in April, they're all still in the U.S. So the place deserted. I camped on the beach there and continued yeah. along. And I was like, okay, it's, it's starting to get dark. Niagara Falls is just up there. What's my strategy? So actually, I knew that there was an island. You can see it on the satellite um, just up from the brink of the Horseshoe Falls. It's called Navy Island. It's uninhabited. And on a satellite image, it's just like dark green. It's about 200 acres of dense old-growth forest, uninhabited in the middle of the river. And I'm like, this is perfect. I can land on that island and camp there. Nobody's going to disturb me on this island in the middle of the Niagara River. It's four kilometers from the brink of the falls. So when I saw the island looming up, um, I cut away from the mainland, left the safety of the riverbank, and started paddling towards the island, uh, Navy Island there. And I was paddling hard, but the current is so strong that it was still sucking me in the direction of the Horseshoe Falls. And wow. this is a little nerve, nerve-wracking, even though I know, like, I'll, I'll be fine. I can get to this island, no big deal. But, um, in but the how far are you mind, from the falls at this about point? About four kilometers from the brink mm-hmm. of the Horseshoe Falls. But above okay. the falls, you have all that white water. Like, there's a couple of kilometers of, like, very... Mm-hmm serious vortex of surging white water. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, some of the history. You probably, maybe you've heard of that incident that happened in 1960. This is the same stretch of waters where uh, famously in 1960, there were three people on board a motorboat. And the motorboat's engine ran into some difficulty. And with the motor on the boat uh, having died, these three people on on board the boat in 1960 were sucked in the direction of the Horseshoe Falls. And of course, they're trapped in the current. They can't get out. Uh, now, as it happened, as soon as they got into the rapids, the boat capsized. All right. three of them went into the water. One of them, miraculously, people on shore, tourists, saw them and heroically sort of waded out and grabbed one of them, snatched them just before the brink. But the other two, a man and a young boy, they went over the falls. Uh, the man, he drowned, but the boy uh, miraculously survived. Unbelievable. Uh, going over, yeah. So that's what was in my head. Like, if anything went yeah. wrong, this is exactly where I am now. Like, if I... If I let my paddle slip out of my hand, if it broke, if I had some freak 
muscle spasm or cramp, uh, I'm going over to Niagara Falls. But luckily, nothing like that happened. I landed on the island. The shore is actually kind of um, imposing. It's like steep mud banks with lots of thorn bushes. So I had to hack through that up into the forest. But it was amazing. It's like a time capsule. Um, this old growth forest with like towering giant sugar maples and old ash and, and, and uh, red oaks and white oaks and shagbark hickory. It's, it was, felt like stepping back in time 200 years, like a glimpse of what southern Ontario would have looked like mm-hmm. two centuries ago with these towering old growth um, trees hundreds of years old. So I spent the night camping on the island. And then my plan was I would get up around 4 a.m. when it was still dark and paddle back across the river in the dark land on the bank, on the riverbank when it was still dark, and mm-hmm. portage around the, the falls uh, early in the morning before there were many tourists around because I wanted to avoid attracting any attention to myself. Yeah, I didn't know Beca- what to becoming expect. a photo op, yeah. Well, I was like, yeah, partly on the, you know, the best case scenario is that there's like 100 people with phones taking pictures of me and putting me on social media, which I didn't really want because right. it's a distraction, and people are going to be like, what the heck are you doing? Are you crazy? And it's just yeah. going to slow me down, right? And I'm like, I'm like you know, if, I, if I'm slowed down six or seven days into a 3,400-kilometer journey, that doesn't bode well because I've got a lot of distance to cover to actually get to the Arctic. But the other thing was I didn't know if, like, you know, if uh, parks police or anything else would stop me and say, you can't, you can't portage a canoe through here. And I'm like, but it's a portage road. People did this hundreds of years ago. And they're like, yeah, not anymore. <laughs> not so fast. Now, maybe I should say as an aside, some people are asking, well, why, why didn't you just go through the Welland Canal? Uh, what are you, an idiot? Why didn't you go through the canal? Well, yeah. for a very good reason. The reason I didn't go through the canal is it's, um, the, it's for, for motorboats only, right? My, my huh. canoe would be run over by the freighters right. if I tried to right. go through it. And you yeah. can take pleasure boats through it, but they have to be a decent size to go through the locks. You need yeah. a motorboat. You can't take a canoe through it. So that's why. Um, so I had to go down the Niagara River. Yeah, Niagara Falls is more interesting anyway. Well, I landed at the falls. So when I got close to the mainland, I pivoted and I kept going in the dark. And I thought it was safe to go a little bit farther. I could hear in the dark the roar of the falls. Like I could just hear this roar. And I could see there were rocks in the water. And I didn't want to hit any of them and fall in. But I kept going because I was thinking this is a long portage and I need to minimize it. Um, Whatever I can do to shave off some of the distance, I need to do. So as I'm approaching, I could see the start of the white water. But I knew I had nothing to worry about because I really wouldn't go over the falls at all. Because... Just up from the falls, if you look on a satellite image, you'll see this straight line that goes out into the river. It's obviously mm-hmm. not natural. I mean, straight lines don't occur in nature. So what is that? Well, that's the hydro intake. Uh, that's the massive hydro intake. So I knew I had nothing to worry about with regard to the falls because I'd be sucked into the hydro turbines long before <laughs> the falls themselves. Uh, so I landed just before the turbines at the last safe spot I could get out. Beyond that, it's all like barbed wire fencing and stuff try to prevent idiots from going into the water above the falls. <laughs> uh, so that's at Chippewa. There's a park there. I landed right at that park, Niagara Parks Commission. It was still dark, and I had traveled with me in the front of my canoe. I'd gone to Canadian Tire, and I bought these, um, this little cart, this collapsible cart mm-hmm. with two wheels on it for portaging. And I knew like, uh, everything's cool. going to depend on this cart, right? Yeah, you can go to Canadian Tire. It's like 100 bucks. I highly recommend it. Um, I had experimented in years past with like high-tech carts, ordered yeah. them for like portaging on the arctic tundra something really rugged that you yeah. can use like off trail none of them had ever worked then i went to canadian tire and bought like this ordinary canoe cart and the thing was a dream worked so well that's uh, good to know yeah so you, I, this is a personal dream of mine usually on a two kilometer portage that yeah. well i'm just trying to give you practical <laughs> tips in case you ever want to do this journey yeah absolutely 
So I had that collapsible cart in the front of my canoe in the bow, and I set it up. You know, it was pretty easy to set up. It would be obviously easier if you had two people so one person could hold the cart, the other person could hold the canoe and put it on it. But I just Mm -hmm. balanced it, strapped it on, racketed it on really tight. I was carrying some fresh water because obviously I couldn't drink the water straight out of the lakes. Um, So I balanced all that. The key is all in the balance. And then the cart takes almost all the weight, makes it really easy. All you have to do is push. Luckily, there's a little trail that runs right along the, the Niagara River there, and it's paved most of the way. So I was just pushing along this trail yeah. with my canoe, my backpack, and my paddles, my barrel, my life jacket. Yeah. And dawn was breaking. I had about a couple of kilometers to go yeah. to get to the brink of the falls. There was a little bridge over the water, like where it goes out over the rushing water, right by the hydro station. I thought, I might get stuck here. My canoe might be too wide. I don't know if I'm going to foot onto this footbridge. Luckily, mm-hmm. I squeezed right through it. And then just as I was getting close to the brink of the falls, the, you know, the sun had come up. A uh, police officer drove by, and I tried to just act natural and push the canoe along. Maybe he won't notice anything out of the ordinary, but he did, and he pulled over. And it was Niagara Parks Police, which is this strange anomaly, Canada's second oldest police force. They date back to the 1800s. Really weird that Niagara Parks has their own police. Um, He said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just Uh, canoeing to the Arctic, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He thought, uh, he he actually didn't believe me. He thought I was a daredevil because daredevils have done this. It's illegal, right? Mm -hmm. There's a massive fine if you get caught stunting in the park, Mm -hmm. trying to go over the falls in a barrel or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And he thought, you know, you're going to try to canoe the falls, like you're going to put in and canoe the rapids. And I said, that's the exact opposite of what I'm doing. That's why I'm portaging. I need to get around the falls. Mm. And crazy as it sounds, someone actually attempted to do that in 1990. This American kayaker from Tennessee, uh, Jesse Sharp was his name. He was like a very serious whitewater kayaker. He had developed this elaborate plan where he thought he could kayak the rapids above the falls. And the rapids above the falls are as wild as any. Uh, mm-hmm. Just getting through the rapids would be incredible, and then go over the falls. He attempted that. You can look it up online if you're interested. He did not survive. He went. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, he drowned. Um, and I said, No, no, that's not what I want to do. And luckily, he said, Okay, well, you know, I can see you have a plan. I can see you're well equipped there. Um, I'll just radio to the other units along the parkway so that nobody else bothers you. Because I, I explained that's why I'm here super early in the morning. I'm trying to do this without attracting attention to myself, right? That's why I'm not doing it um, in the middle of the day. And it, it, was April, it was still the end of April, and it was a weekday, and it was a cold day. It was a cold April, so there wasn't that many tourists around. And I passed the brink of the Horseshoe Falls, kept going there. There were a few tourists, mostly from abroad, and I think they kind of looked at me a little bit curious, but I just sort of casually pushed along, nodded hello, and I think they just sort of assumed that portaging canoes around the falls must be a normal Canadian thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to keep going. Now, it's a long way. It's about 13 kilometers from the hydro intake to the Whirlpool. And that's the next safe place you can put back into the river. You have to get beyond the whirlpool, one of the most powerful whirlpools, natural whirlpools in the world. So I had to get beyond that. So I passed, you know, the maid of the mist, all these things. And as I'm pushing along, there were definitely a lot of curious looks. Like that early in the morning, there was mostly just staff there, like Niagara Parks maintenance guys and uh, gardeners, and they were looking at me (laughs) and a few other people. When I got to about the travel lodge, which is just beyond the Rainbow Bridge, I remember somebody was on the balcony of that hotel, and they looked down and they said, Long portage, and I'm like, I've had longer, and I just kept pushing along. Went under the Rainbow Bridge, um, which is below the falls there, and kept pushing along. Then there's an incline. I wasn't anticipating that, but there's an incline where I had to push uphill up the sidewalk, past a few joggers and things. Everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, weird stuff. Uh, And then I get beyond the Bird Kingdom and pushed all the way along the Niagara Gorge, Niagara Glen, 
Uh, river does a sort of a turn there, pushing it all the way along. Then I get to the Whirlpool Bridge. And then beyond that, I go down into the village of Queenston. A little side trail leads through the woods there. Beautiful forest. I had to actually stop because I saw this giant uh, cottonwood, one of the biggest trees I've ever seen in old growth. Photograph that. Mm. Then I went all the way down to uh, the dock at Queenston where I put back into the river. This is just at the end of the gorge. So you have like 300-foot limestone cliffs there um, where the gorge ends. And I put into the river there. And ironically, you have to paddle very hard because the current will actually, it reverses and it will carry you back into the gorge, down into the whirlpool. So to catch the downstream current, you have to paddle out into the middle of the river near the international boundary. And the river is flowing that way. So basically, if you think of it like this, uh, along the sides of the river, the current is reversing. It's like a back eddy. And it's going upstream, really strong mm-hmm. upstream. So you have to paddle the center. From there, it was like another three hours because the wind was actually strong. It's coming in my face to get to the Lake Ontario. From Lake Ontario... I had a choice. I could go right or I could go left. If I go right, the distance is shorter. Um, It's only like 400 kilometers, but I would be Mm -hmm. leaving Canada and going into the U.S. and following the New York uh, shoreline, which is actually a lot less developed, so camping prospects would be better. Other than Rochester, there's not a lot of uh, big cities there. So I thought about it, but I said, you know, I don't have a passport on me. (laughs) and uh, there's going to be other challenges if I go into American waters, so I better stay in Canada. But this means taking a longer way around because I have to go all the way around the lake now, all the way over to Stony Creek, Hamilton, Burlington. Mm -hmm. And I was apprehensive because I'm like, that's the biggest urban area by far in Canada. From Hamilton to Oshawa is like, if you look on satellite imagery, it's just a sea of of concrete, asphalt, pavement, not promising for camping but i went that way and i kept going and you know a few days later is when i hit hamilton when a storm pinned me down there amazing and then i uh, got up in the i would i woke up in the middle of the night the storm died around 3 a.m and i let the lights of the cityscape guide me as i paddled beyond oakville and mississauga uh I, that was like one of my longest days i did like 15 hours of paddling because conditions wow. were good and i was like i have no choice I've got to get yeah. beyond Toronto. I don't know where yeah. I'm going to camp. And I yeah. couldn't get beyond Toronto. It was getting dark. Again, I had to get around Billy Bishop Airport, which is on one of those islands in the harbor. But I ended up sleeping on a Toronto island. Not way. The Toronto Islands, yeah, there's 13 of them. It's a little yeah. chain of 13 islands. Four yeah. of them are uh, uninhabited. There's nothing on them. They're just heavily forested. So I found one of these Robinson Crusoe islands and spent the Fun. night on it. Made my camp in the dark, which was no problem because... Even well after the sun had gone down, there was enough artificial glow from the millions of people in Toronto, from the yeah. skyscrapers, that I could easily see in the forest in the islands and set up my tent. But the Toronto Islands were like this wonderful little oasis. I had never been to them before, mm-hmm. um, but I had to remind myself that I was still in Toronto. They're only a couple kilometers offshore, but it feels like it's a, another yeah. planet. I mean, it's just yeah. this quiet little paradise yeah with like geese and ducks and wildlife and forested islands. So it was yeah. wonderful weaving through these little tranquil channels through the Toronto Islands. And it was surreal that you'd look over your shoulder and then there's like these glittering skyscrapers yeah. just a kilometer away. Um, you know, it's just such a, such a strange contrast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, even, then, even, the, even the inhabited ones are like... These yeah, they're, remote, they're very tiny. There's not yeah, a remote any... beach town somewhere. Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 There's uh, there's 13 of them in total, yeah, and they're all pretty quiet. I mean, obviously, a lot of tourists come in the summer, 
but at that time of year, they were very quiet. So that. So was how, yeah, how many days are you now in? You've reached Toronto Island, and oh, uh, I think that was like nine days, maybe ten days. It's amazing, eh? Because I was traveling fast. And that's going fast. <laughs> no, I know, and you think I mean because we all zip around this province in cars, and yeah. you know, it's like a from my, my house to your house is a long. It's a longish day drive, basically, yeah. right yeah. from Ottawa to to where you are. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's something about slowing down. And traveling yeah. under your own power. It doesn't necessarily have to be a canoe. You can just be walking or hiking yeah. or cycling. Uh, it gives you a new appreciation for the landscape. And it lets you see things that you would never notice. I mean, you could do that drive a thousand times. But at 100 kilometers an hour down the QEW or whatever, you're not really appreciating the topography of the place. That's one thing I'll say, okay? When I was on Lake Ontario and I was approaching Grimsby, um, I was like, wow. You know, for the first time, I feel like I see Grimsby for the first time with fresh mm-hmm. eyes. Because yeah. the landscape there by southern ontario standards is very dramatic if you go to grimsby they call it the mountain they have the mountain road and it's like there's no mountain here this is southern ontario but they're talking about the niagara escarpment and uh, when you see it from the water it does seem like a mountain it's very dramatic from the perspective you get from the stern of a canoe Uh, the escarpment actually dramatically surges up there and it includes a pair of twin peaks like these twin peaks Um, and it, it looks really spectacular from the water uh, so getting to see that from my canoe, it was like, wow, never, never again when I pass through this area in a car will I look upon any of these places the same. And the same with the Burlington Skyway. Now whenever I drive over the Burlington Skyway, um, wow. it just seems so different to me because I've actually camped under it and I've, I've got to know all of these little places. And one of the most rewarding aspects of my journey is that I found no matter where you go in Canada, even in the biggest cities like Toronto and Montreal, um, there are some amazing natural gems, little preserved parks, green space, pretty much everywhere. This was one of the most uh, rewarding aspects of my journey when I got to Scarborough. I was astonished how wild the Scarborough Lakeshore is. Oh, the uh, bluffs and yeah. Yeah, there's beautiful. a water treatment plant. I think it's the Harris something or rather. It's like the nicest water treatment plant I've mm. ever seen. It's like this old Art Deco style building. People mm. get like their wedding photos done there or something like that. But anyways, it was a windy day. I was battling horrible headwinds, like just gusting wind. I had to get beyond Toronto, beyond the beaches. And then beyond that water treatment plant, again, you can see this on satellite imagery, there's just miles and miles of undeveloped shoreline, high eroded bluffs with forests and little coves at the bottom. And these quiet little coves um, that are very difficult to access because of the high eroded shoreline, uh, which keeps them wild. So it's like an oasis for wildlife, for migrating birds. I mean, I saw many Arctic species on their journeys there. And it's like kind of a reminder of how crucial these little green spaces are even in the heart of our biggest cities and how Arctic species like these migratory birds rely upon them as critical stopover places on their journeys. And as I relied on them, I ended up camping a night in, uh, in Scarborough there because again, the storm picked up and I had to spend the night on the beach there and everyone I crossed paths with on my journey. I mean, I didn't know what to expect, what people would say, but, uh, everyone I talked to, uh, I, I mean, in my, my diary, I kept a list of all the people I met with from Long Point to the end of my journey on the Arctic coast. It was like over mm-hmm. 150 people. And every single one of them showed me nothing but kindness uh, yeah. and enthusiasm. Like people were giving me Tim Hortons, like, oh, man, look at this guy. In <laughs> um, the, you know, fresh water, they give me advice. I, a couple of times I had nowhere to go. So I had to knock on someone's door on Lake Erie or on the St. Lawrence River and say, look, um, this is as far as I can get. Uh, can I camp in your backyard kind of thing? Because they mm-hmm. own like a lakefront. And every single time I did that, everyone was uh, only too happy. They'd be like, oh, can I make you dinner? Do you need a shower? And I'd be like, no, no, none of that. <laughs> Just give me a spot to camp and I'll be in your debt forever. Uh, you'll right. have already given me the greatest kindness you possibly can. 
place to sleep. So that was really rewarding. And the people I met in Scarborough, they always, you know, I always said I had no idea that Scarborough had so much green space. And they'd always say, that's what we love about this place, you know, um, yeah. that we have this quiet little place we can escape to. Same in Montreal, same in Quebec City, uh, same in these places. So that was a reminder of like, you yeah. know, even in the year 2023, uh, it's pretty, pretty special that in Canada, uh, no matter where you go, we still have these wild places where people can unwind, can unplug, mm-hmm. can escape to. Because in so much of the rest of the world, um, that's no longer the case, right? Um, green yeah. space is disappearing everywhere. So I think it's a real reminder that, you know, of the importance of these places and hopefully we protect them yeah. for future generations. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I think we've got a bit of a taste of, of Montreal and I, I do, I do want to head North at some point here. So, um, I mean, at what point do you, do you feel like you've got, I, mean, I guess it's past Quebec city or something like, when do you feel like, okay, I'm leaving things behind here a bit? Oh, okay. So it doesn't get really wild. Well, there are sections of the North Shore that are very wild where cell service doesn't work. Um, right. Between Montreal and Quebec City. N- well, no, no. Or beyond that. Beyond that. Yeah, beyond yeah. that. Um, mm. When it gets really rugged into the Laurentians. Although yeah. one of the most astonishing landscapes that I wasn't anticipating for me uh, was the area uh, just to the west of Trois-Rivières. Mm-hmm. Uh, the St. Lawrence there, the topography is very different. It's actually a giant wetland. I, I felt like I was in Louisiana or Mississippi. Yeah, cool. Like it's this flooded forest. Um, you can be snaking between trees like silver maples and cottonwoods. And as far as the eye can see, it goes on for miles and miles and miles. It felt like I had passed into a portal and I was in another world where there was nothing but swamp forest, uh, these huh. big swampy islands. It's a big archipelago of over 100 islands uh, on the St. Lawrence there. And it's just incredibly swampy, but also incredibly rich for waterfowl, for migratory birds. Uh, they all pass right. through that area. But, I mean, there was just, there was not even an inch of dry land. And I thought, I'm going to have to end up lashing my canoe with a rope to a tree and then just sleeping in the canoe because there's no dry land to put up a tent anywhere in here. Uh, That section of the St. Lawrence was totally different. And then later on, I ran into challenges when I got down to Cap Sante, where the topography again changes dramatically and all of a sudden you have cliffs Mm. on either bank of the river. Um, And it's like, okay, this is a different challenge. Now I I can't find enough of uh, level ground to put a tent on. But yeah, that was all a big challenge. Then when I was in that area near Trois-Rivières, there was a big storm which you may mm-hmm. well remember, if you think back to around May 21st or so of 2022. Oh, yeah. There was tornadoes. Uh, yeah, yeah. What do they call that? The May 20th Der- Derrico? It was like the sixth costliest. Derecho, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. It caused a lot of damage. So I had all of a sudden I had tornadoes and knocking off trees and things. I had to put my tent in a big clearing to escape them. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. It was like the sky was orange. Oh, I was right in the heart of Path of Destruction. After that, for days... Um, I would just be canoeing along and I would see people in the backyard cleaning up trees and I could hear the constant hum of generators because the power was off yeah. for like a week uh, downriver mm-hmm. after that. It was like a thousand kilometer path of destruction from eastern Ontario all the way to Quebec City that those, that storm system tore right through. That was a little bit nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. I had to make camp early that day because I could see, okay, there's clearly something coming. Like, look at those clouds. You don't have to be a meteorologist to see that this is like out of the movie Twister. These giant clouds on the horizon. It was like the Himalayas, just clouds stacked one on top of another with an orange hue to the sky. And I'm like, what am I going to do? There was a little bridge where a creek came into the St. Lawrence. And I was like, it's an old stone bridge. I could go under the bridge and just wait out these tornadoes under that bridge because I'll be fairly protected. Yeah, in the canoe. But I'm like, oh, if there's a storm surge, that might not be very comfortable or if the storm lasts a long time, but I'd be protected from falling branches and hail at least. And I'm like, oh, when in doubt, push on. 
So I'm like racing to get away from the storm because I'm like, just down river is Trois-Rivières. I don't know what to expect there. It's a pretty sizable city. It might be all urban, mm-hmm. all built up. There'll be nowhere where I can camp. But I was lucky just before the city, I came across a, kind of like a summer camp. It turned out it was like a retreat for the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, mm-hmm. I met a caretaker there. And I said, en français, do you speak English? He's like, mm-hmm. no. And then I'm like, okay, I don't know what the word in French is for tornado. But I was like, basically made myself understood. Because yeah. it's strangely calm yeah. before that storm hit, right? It was like, oh, there's nothing, nothing no big deal. The trees were partially concealing it. But I said, um, you know, basically I'm canoeing from Lake Erie to the Arctic. Can I set my tent up here? And he said, okay, 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 okay. So he let me camp there. And uh, it was like beautiful forest. I remember how rich the forest there was, like red oaks and um, shag bark hickories, cottonwoods, uh, sugar maples. But mm. I found a clearing and I was eyeballing it. And I'm like, okay, if I put my tent here, I stake it down with guy lines. Yeah. I think I'm far enough from any of these trees that they're not going to collapse in, or crash into my tent in the night. So I put right. my tent up in the center. And I was also looking, I was like, mostly all oaks. Oaks are really sturdy. I wouldn't want to be around yeah. those silver maples because those are definitely going to come down in the storm. And luckily I was fine. I thought for sure my tent was going to get destroyed and my canoe was going to get picked up like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and carried mm-hmm. away. Uh, I put it like I lashed it down in between these trees, but I was lucky. Nothing was destroyed, but the storm actually did damage the, the, the summer camp. It picked up these gazebos. It threw one gazebo into a tree and it smashed another gazebo against a building. It ripped the eaves troughs off the cabins there and did a lot of damage, but I was fine. Yes, wow. I was counting my lucky stars. Many times I felt like, uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> the gods have smiled upon me. I'm very, very lucky here. Uh, I got lucky many times. See, even at Quebec City, I was like, oh, it's getting dark. I don't know where I'm going to camp. And again, I asked permission. I, like, there was a little private uh, like, um, a marina, a yacht club, right below mm-hmm. the walls of the old city. And oh, again, cool. I'm like, I look so scruffy. It's like five weeks in now. I haven't showered or anything. I mean, look at me. I look like a hobo. And uh, my French is not that good. I'm going to ask these people for permission to camp on the grounds of a private club. They're undoubtedly going to tell me to scram as a trespasser and go find an actual campground. Mm -hmm. But no, as soon as I tell them that, they're not only give me, immediately give me permission to camp there. And I never introduce myself. Like, I don't tell them who I am, really. I just say, Mm -hmm. I'm just canoeing a long way. It's been a month. Can I camp here? And they always would say yes. And they would then say do you need water? Do you need anything? Like there's a, they would show me a tap on the side of the building. They're like, you can, you can fill up your bottle there if you need fresh water. So I'd camp there. That's when it got really hard, though, when the river turns tidal. Then it's salty. Uh, I almost got caught by the tide at Cap Sante. I wasn't expecting it. I think I'd read somewhere that the river didn't turn tidal mm-hmm. until Quebec City. But no, actually, the tides reach more than 50 kilometers up from there. So in the middle of the night, I'd gone uh-huh. to sleep, put my tent about 50 feet from the water line. And then around 3 a.m., I roll over my sleeping bag, and I'm like, ah, I hear lapping water. It sounds strange at the close. There hasn't been any rain. This is very strange. And I open yeah. the tent door, and it's like the water line is three feet away. And I'm like, oh, no, the high tide, water has come in. I ended up having to take down my tent and sleep on the rocks, just wrap myself up in my jacket, because I'm like, there's nowhere to go. There's cliffs behind me, and there's water in front of me. I'm just going to have to spend the night sleeping on the rocks. So that was an interesting surprise to find that the tides reach that far up. But yes, there were many challenges mm-hmm. on this journey uh, from yeah. tides and break walls and hydro and polar bears and everything else. So let's head towards the polar bears. So wh- where are you? I was look, looking at a map and trying to figure out where exactly you went north. So what was that point where you, you start heading towards the yeah. Arctic? So when I'm canoeing on the salt water, like where there's whales and stuff, um, I knew. Yeah. Are you seeing whales and stuff? Sorry, I just... <laughs> No, not there. I knew I couldn't keep canoeing there. It was impossible. 
um, that I would have to switch to hiking because um, for two reasons. Well, one, primarily the hydro, because there's so much, all the major rivers that traditionally you would think that's the route north, that's my ticket north. And when I was be studying the map, I'd be like, okay, I'll turn north on this river and go up this river. And then you look and it's like, this has like one of the largest hydroelectric dams in North America on it. So it's like, okay, this is impossible. Almost all those major rivers flowing into the St. Lawrence have been dammed for hydroelectricity, right? Like Manic 5, all these big, big dams. So I'm like, this isn't going to work. There's no way I can get up them because of these hydro dams um, in, the, in the associated fencing where they've all been fenced off with like barbed wire and stuff. So you can't even really portage around a dam, not that that would be safe. Huh. So I'm like, I'm going to have to hike to get around the hydroelectric dams, do a very long portage to get around them. But also I was like, there's no way, I can't really canoe on the salt water here. There's no water to drink. And the tides get really difficult uh, down by Ile d'Orléans um, because mm-hmm. it's like at low tide, there are tidal mudflats that extend a kilometer or two. And those mudflats make it very difficult to access the water because you try to walk across them and you sink down up to your knees or even deeper. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's problematic because the river there is like 50 kilometers wide. It's not even really a river. It's more like the mm-hmm. Gulf. Um, and the waves are huge. So I'm like, okay, I'll switch to hiking and I'll bypass all the hydro in the salt water and then I'll get a canoe and paddle the rest of the way. So I'm like, I'm not going to take my canoe with me from here on in. I'll leave it behind and I'll find a second canoe when I get beyond all the hydro. And I was like, how am I going to find a second canoe? Did you work this all out ahead of time? Have it delivered? <laughs> no. I was like, this is an no. uh, old-fashioned adventure off the cuff. I've rolled the dice. I, this is Canada. How hard can it be to find a canoe? Even if it's like some leaky exactly. old boat from like the 1930s in someone's backyard that's been patched an alarming number of times, right. I'll just buy it or ask to borrow it and paddle out the rest of the way. So on the North Shore of Quebec there, just past Ile d'Orléans, um, I landed and I'm like, I have to find somewhere to store my canoe. And I'm like, it'll probably still be another couple of months, at least two more months before I re- reach the Arctic coast. So I'm like, oh, there's lots of forest here. I could hide my canoe in the forest and just, um, you know, hope that it's fine. But I'm like, yeah, the two months is a long time. I better actually find someone. And it's all farms in that area, really picturesque farms, some like very old farms. And I saw a farmer on a tractor. So I flagged him down. And again, I said, do you speak English en français, right? Uh, Je suis très désolé. Je parle un peu le français, mais mon français est très mauvais. Parlez-vous anglais? And they're like, no, no. No, You're doing pretty well. You're doing pretty well. So then I have to, again, rack my brain, try to explain myself. But everyone's Mm. just so nice to me. And again, this was one of the most rewarding things. It warms my heart even now to think Mm. of the kindness that total strangers showed to me, even without even really understanding what I was doing. Um, they don't even really know, right. When they're meeting me, is this idiot just canoeing for the weekend or he's been canoeing for two months kind of thing. Uh, but long story short, I met a horse farmer there and he said, Oh, I'd be happy, be happy to store your canoe, keep it safe in my barn, put it in my horse barn and it'll be perfectly safe. And I said, thank you so much. And he again offered me food. He's like, do you need cheese? Do you need apples? Whatever, whatever you want, take it. Um, and I said, I'll be back in a couple months. So from there I hiked on foot through the mountains. Can I just ask you a question? Yes. I mean, all of this kindness, and I think humans are kind generally. I mean, we all have it in us. But I'm wondering how much the canoe actually, like there's an element of the canoe that like, I really think touches the soul of Canadians. And I'm just wondering how much, I mean, if you showed up in a motorboat, it might be a whole different story. Or It might be, but I think that there's just uh, people, the vast majority of people, it's easy to forget. I think, I think in our 21st century world with social media, yeah. People get very cynical and they think every other person out there is like, uh, you know, bad. But in reality, I think there's nothing better. I mean, if you 
get out with some old-fashioned travel and you meet people in the real world, you get away from your digital screen, it's amazing. Uh, the vast majority of people are kind and compassionate in our world. Yeah. And it's uh, easy to forget that. A few bad apples can make you think everyone is like yeah. that. But I think that that's not the case. I think especially when you get away from social media, yeah. you realize in the real world, most people are actually very kind and quick to help someone else, yeah. not just Canadians, but I think it's the true... Uh, everywhere, really. Uh, because even when I didn't have a canoe, people were kind. Like, for example, when I approached that tractor or the farmer on his tractor, I didn't actually have my canoe. I left it down by the lake shore or the river shore. So he didn't, he just saw me walking on foot. <laughs> and he might think, what's this idiot doing walking into my field? But no, he was just very happy to, to help me. I mean, all, partly I think it's because they can tell you're not from around these parts, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a certain pride of price, right? Like, or pride of place that mm -hmm. this is uh, someone who's come into my neck of the woods and I want to show him hospitality. And I just saw hospitality continuously. But even when I was hiking, I met with various people hiking. And it was, it was no different. They would give me yogurt. They would give me whatever. Mm -hmm. They would help me, um, offer me all kinds of things. Actually, I didn't tell you that one of my best stories was an old lady I met um, just as I came into Quebec uh, when I crossed the boundary. Mm -hmm. And a huge storm, like lightning. And I get pinned down, trapped at a trailer park there. But anyways, this wonderful old lady... Uh, she gave me cheese. She made me French onion soup. It was so nice on a wet day. Oh and I camped, uh, I camped just outside her trailer there. That was wonderful. But anyways, everyone showed me such kindness as I was hiking through the mountains there. That was very rugged, very punishing. I had been pushing myself as hard as I ever had, mm -hmm. paddling on average 12 hours a day. But on good days, I would do 15 hours in my canoe. And I don't know, but the canoeing doesn't bother me physically. Mm -hmm. My back doesn't get sore. Uh, my arms don't get sore. I don't have a problem with that. But when I switch to hiking through the mountains, and that area has you know, some of the highest peaks in yeah. eastern Canada, a uh, very rugged area on the North Shore there of the Laurentians, right? Um, that, that was exhausting. Like, uh, I felt the, 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 the pain in my legs hiking into these mountains. There's a section of the Trans-Canada Trail that runs through there, and I'm like, this is perfect. I can follow the Trans-Canada yeah, Trail. Cool. The Trans-Canada Trail is a little bit misleading. I think if people aren't familiar with it, you just think they kind of like Trans-Canada Highway, no. there just must be one. It's but it's actually like a network of trails that go in all different directions. Yeah. So on the North Shore, they, and they just kind of took existing local trails in many cases and declared that's now part of the Trans-Canada. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, this is perfect. I can follow this into the mountains. So I followed that. And when I first started hiking, I could only do like eight or nine hours a day yeah. um, before I'd be completely exhausted because my backpack weighed about 50 pounds. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> I had jammed all the food I could carry into it mm -hmm. and everything else I needed. I had a little propane butane uh, camp stove, right? Because yeah. I'm like, some areas I might not be able to make a fire. Yeah. Um, and my clothing, everything, my, I was carrying a little carbon filter water purifier for yeah. pumping water. All that stuff, I jammed it in there. I remember right off the bat, as soon as I hiked in the mountains, I met a local guy named Pierre. Uh, and he was cycling. He's like, oh, you know, he was so intrigued. He's like, well, one, are you worried about bears? There's lots of bears up there. And I was like, no, no, I just had a grizzly charge me last month. Won't yeah. be bad. Kind of thing. Uh, but he told me, like, the forest where you're going is very, very special. It's old growth forest because the mountains were so steep. Mm -hmm. They were never logged. And indeed, that was the case. I mean, the beautiful forest. And it was at that point where I saw my first real dramatic change in the landscape. Mm -hmm. In the St. Lawrence Valley, it was still overwhelmingly deciduous trees, like broadleaf species, like mm -hmm. oaks, cottonwoods, poplars, uh, hickories, maples. But when I came over that first mountain, all of a sudden you saw the transition to the boreal forest. Now the broadleaf species are gone, and you have increasing amounts of hemlock, uh, spruce, balsam fir, and pine. And it's like, wow, this is dramatic. I mean, you can Google it right now. Canadian Geographic likes to make these maps that mm -hmm. show the different ecoregions or ecosystems that make up the diversity of Canada's landscape, and you just kind of color it in 
different colors. I have a map on my website that shows it, right? Mm. Um, and it'll be like, okay, that's Carolinian forest, or this is boreal forest, or, or what have you. This is the grasslands. But to actually see it um, in see real time as you're hiking along, yeah. it's like, wow, it's dramatic. It's, it's totally different. It's a world of sphagnum moss and uh, conifers. So I was now into this landscape, and the wildlife changes too, right? Um, now I'm getting into black bears and wolves and lots of uh, ptarmigans and mm-hmm. grouse, and uh, they're very, very different. So I hiked all the way through there. And I had to hike a long way because I was following, uh, what is that, the uh, Manicougan River, mm-hmm. which has got five big dams on it, like Manic 1, Manic 2, Manic 3, These some of the biggest hydroelectric mm-hmm. dams in the world. Are you still on marked trails at this point? or No, I followed, well, I followed the Trans-Canada Trail at first, mm-hmm. and then when that petered out, then it was just local trails and things that I'm taking, whatever I can take. Sometimes there was no trails, mm-hmm. and I have to bushwhack. Yeah. Uh, which was very hard because the weather turned incredibly wet. If you look up this May, June 2022, I swear it was like the wettest yeah. spring on record, especially for uh, the North Shore of, of, of yeah. Quebec there. It, w- it was like Im- unbelievable. I'd never encountered so much rain. And the temperature was unseasonably cold. Mm-hmm. It, the temperature, the t- the, it was consistently 10 degrees below seasonal norms. It'd be like zero or plus one pouring rain like heavy heavy rain and there's nothing i could do my clothes would just soak right through i had my gore-tex rain pants my gore-tex jacket and if you hike all day in just heavy rain the gore-tex will soak through and i was just soaked mm-hmm. i was like as wet as a fish i couldn't have been any wetter if i just jumped into a lake and i remember there's like 34 days and it rained on 32 of them at least some of the time like it was just continuous wet weather um, i was just chilled and the forest was just sodden. Like every step you take, you can't avoid it. You're stepping through sphagnum moss and it's just like the water oozes out into your boots. Um, So again, I was taking anything I could, local trails, hydro cuts, uh, lots of uh, uh, ATVs or four-wheelers are obviously very popular in this neck of the woods because there were a lot of four-wheeler trails I would follow. And basically I'm just working my way northeast until I got to the 389. 389 is a little... um, unserviced road that winds north yeah, to right. Labrador. Right. Like just follow the 389, nice and easy, wild, no shortage of campsites. It's all wilderness. So I followed that beyond all the hydro dams, all the way up, winding through the mountains, very rugged. And uh, the northern part of that road is just unpaved. That did a number on my toes and, and ankles because it's just like loose rocks yeah. all over. Hiking on loose rocks is, is hard. It's a challenge, especially with a heavy backpack. And I was extremely hungry. I was like ravenous, right? But every once in a while, I'd meet people and they would give me some food. Uh, in fact, I was running out of food wow. because there's only so much food you can carry. Oh, yeah. I could tell you stories. I mean, I've written about this in my, my new book, Where the Falcon Flies, but all the nice, kind-hearted people who gave me food along the way. And like, yeah, I mean, I was eating one meal a day is what I was living off of. So when someone would give me like an apple or whatever, a yogurt, it was like, huh, what an undreamed of extravagance. <laughs> this is amazing. I'd never been so hungry. I lost more weight on this journey than I did on my 4,000-kilometer journey alone across the Arctic right. uh, because I, I, mean, I was just burning through calories like mad. Hiking also burns more calories. Yeah, exactly. Right? The hiking would be the worst of it for sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're just taking a real beating your yeah. whole body. Yeah, you appreciate um, the hard or, work the canoe does in terms of hauling stuff for you, don't you? <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and two months in, by June, the black fly season. Oh, and black flies, oh, that was atrocious because in a canoe, you can partly escape from black flies right. with the wind, like paddling farther offshore. You can get away with them. Hiking, you're at their mercy. There's nothing you can do. It got so bad that I took my neck bandana 
and I pulled it over my face and just with my Swiss Army knife cut some eye holes and I had to keep this pulled over my head because the bugs were just like eating me alive. Yeah. It was brutal. But I tr- always try to look on the bright side. I'd be like, well, you know, uh, at least the wind has stopped or at least the rain has stopped or at least I, there's been so much rain, at least I don't have to worry about forest fires because if there's a forest fire on foot, I'm, I'm out of options. Like yeah. <laughs> Forest fires, they can burn 70 kilometers an hour, so I'd be burned to a crisp. Or if the smoke would get me, I wouldn't be able to get away. And you could see a lot of past forest fires that had burned through the area there, mm-hmm. but it was such a wet spring that I didn't have to worry about that. Hypothermia, yeah, maybe I'll get hypothermia, but, you know, always looking on the bright side. Anyways, I hiked all the way north, <laughs> beyond all the hydro dams, until I got to Labrador. And just as you come into Labrador is Labrador City. Right. And I was like, that's where I'll find a canoe. I've passed all the hydro dams. Yeah. Now I've got to Labrador City. There's got to be a canoe somewhere that I can get. And uh, from there, it's like 1,300 kilometers paddles to the Arctic coast. No mm-hmm. big deal. Um, so Labrador City, it's not really a city. It's like 8,000 people, right? Mm-hmm. Small town. Found it in the 1950s or 1960s by the Iron Ore Company of Canada, I believe. Mining town. Still a mining town. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I did when I hiked in there is I actually saw there was a pizza delight. And normally I wouldn't go to a fancy place like that, but I'm like, I'm ravenous. <laughs> I'm skin and bones. And I like devoured a whole pizza. Yeah. They're probably thinking like, wow, who is this guy? Like, you know, he's with backpack covered in black fly bites, yeah. very wild and unkept appearance. Yeah. And then after that, I'm like, I went to the post office, the Canada post office, because I had had my wife, Alexandria, mail to Canada post uh, my supplies. And there's this wonderful thing. It's called uh, flex delivery. Anyone can sign up for it. It's, it's free, I believe. And they give you a little serial number. And if you do this, you can mail yourself anything you want to any Canada Post in the country. Oh, cool. And they'll hold it for you until you come by and pick it up. Um, so if you were, like, riding your bike across Canada, or even if you were just doing a motorcycle trip across the country, this yeah. is very useful if you want anything, you, any fresh clothes or food or whatever held yeah, for you. That's brilliant. So I, I knew this, and I had signed up. And I had her mail to Labrador City some vital supplies that I would need, like an extra pair of socks. <laughs> wool socks. She sent my life jacket there and some other stuff, though. Were they marine, I, merino wool socks, were they? Exactly, merino wool, you yes. You can't go wrong with merino wool. Yeah, so I went to the post office, and I was a little apprehensive because it's was like, who knows if it's actually going to work uh-huh, if they have my stuff. Uh, but they did, and they're like, yes, here it is. Here's your package. Very good. And I was, was very relieved, and I said, Hey, you wouldn't happen to know if you if you, you wouldn't happen to have a canoe or know anyone who has a canoe and maybe wants to sell one. I'm in the market. Uh, I need a canoe. And they're like, no, no, sorry, can't help you. Then I walked. I was like, oh, man, maybe it's going to be a lot harder than I thought. So I walked outside the Canada Post. And <laughs> I'm just walking along and like 100 feet outside the post office door. There's two canoes just lying in the grass overturned beside the side of this building. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, I mean, I'm not sentimental, but I started looking skyward. And I'm like, someone's looking out for me. There's two canoes just lying right here. And I looked over and one was fiberglass. And I was like, well, I, I'll take it if I have to, but fiberglass is going to get punctured and ripped to shreds on northern rivers and the rapids and the rocks. But the other one was perfect. It was an old town, uh, old town tripper. And it was like made out of ABS Royal X, which is a really tough, a yeah. good whitewater canoe. So I was like, that's perfect. And uh, I didn't know what the building was. At first, I thought it was like just an abandoned building. But then I walked all the way around it, and I saw it was a Leon's Furniture Store. <laughs> <laughs> and I went inside, talked to the employees. And they're like, oh, it belongs to the store owner. So I met the store owner, a guy named Ken. And at first, <laughs> when I saw him, I was like, oh, he doesn't he yeah. does not look impressed. He's like, does not want anything to do with me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
but as soon as I told him what I'd done, where I'd come from, I could see his expression change. And he was like, turned out he was cut from the same cloth as me. He was an adventurer, outdoorsy guy. Cool. And he was like, absolutely. So he, he, he sold me his canoe. The away. ABS Royal X1. Yeah. yeah. Gave me a very good price. And he's like, what else do you need? Uh-huh. I'm like, well, I could really use some blister bandages. So he's like, here, come, come in the back room here. He's, he's, he's camper outdoorsy guy he gives me blister bandages he's like you need, you want some food i've got some power bars i've got some energy bars take these wow. and i'm like well i could he, he could see that i'm like pulling up my pants because i've lost so much weight so he gave me his belt no which way. ironically it's a year later i'm still wearing this belt that's ken's nice. belt from labrador thank you kent yeah yeah i mean such a nice guy he even offered he's like what what else can i give for give you like mm-hmm. you know you need clothes what do you need and i'm like well this is really you've already done so much for me and if you look on a map, you'll see the Leons and the Canada Post is only about a five-minute walk from the lake, uh, Little Wabash Lake, mm-hmm. which is the lake uh, Labrador City sits, sits on. And that's exactly where I wanted to get to. Um, nice. So from there, yeah, now it's like the worst part of the journey is behind me or the hardest, most challenging part. Right. All I need to do is paddle from Little Wabash Lake yeah. right here, just down the road from the Leons, and work my way north through a whole riddle of hundreds of different lakes, creeks, right. and rivers mm-hmm. going upstream and downstream over the height of land and working my way northeast across the heart of Labrador, across the Labrador Plateau until I get into the Arctic watershed. From there, all the rivers are flowing north, work my way all the way over to the George River. So this is going to take several weeks, probably about a month or so, but eventually I'll get there. And then I have a straight shot, the George River, um, which is a fairly... Uh, famous river at least among wilderness canoeists yeah, it's good good, uh, is it good white water is it yeah oh, crazy white water nice. hundreds and hundreds of rapids oh, nice. uh, actually it has a, a tragic history many people have drowned in recent years trying to canoe the george river mm-hmm. uh, i think something like 13 people i read online have drowned in relatively recent years attempting to paddle it well i've never seen such white water as on that river it's very mountainous you wouldn't think so many mountains in eastern Canada, but it flows through the mountains. But the river is almost 600 kilometers long. Oh, wow. So that was my objective, to work my way by canoe across Labrador all the way over to um, the start of the George River. I had to take another river, the Riviere de Pas, which is laced with really challenging rapids, like big, big rapids, mm-hmm. um, to get there. So working my way across the Labrador Plateau, weather, again, turned very stormy. Uh, there were multiple days where I was on these remote wilderness lakes, and I was completely stormbound gale force winds making it impossible to paddle i remember there was two days in a row where i was like night and day the wind was relentless i was trapped in my tent i could hear it howling all night long trees swaying around me i couldn't get out of there other thing that was interesting is many lightning storms and when i'm canoeing across you know the labrador wilderness uh along these lake shores you can see these giant chunks of iron naturally occurring iron right because that's why Labrador City and these places exist. They're mining iron there. These are naturally occurring mm. iron deposits. And I'm like, well, I don't know about the wisdom of sleeping in my sleeping in beside all these hunks of iron in a lightning storm. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit alarming. Uh, sometimes I'd just have to like go under a low little spruce bush and lie there because I didn't even want to put up my tent when there were big lightning storms. But Labrador's plateau, um, this big windswept area, it's the windiest place I have ever encountered. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, there'd be days where the wind would be like 40 or 50 kilometers an hour and I'd still be paddling under normal circumstances. You wouldn't really want to go canoeing much above 25 kilometer an hour winds, but on like a 50 kilometer an hour wind day is a good day in Labrador. A bad day is like a hundred kilometers an hour. The wind was just like a huge factor and lots of white water. Um, so so, and this is, this is full high summer, right? Like, 
Well, we're now into July, yeah. We're into July. Wow. And the winds are that bad even then. Yeah, you can read historical accounts, uh, fur trade, whatnot, talking about the Labrador Plateau, uh, which is kind of this elevated area. Yeah. And it's just a very windy, windswept place. Crazy. Um, yeah, the buildings in some of the towns there are, are built as, as wind blocks because it's just so desolate and windy yeah. for so much of the year um, in that big, windy expanse. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I think there's, a, again, I remember looking up on a, a website or something, average wind speed, and it was like shaded different colors, but you can see a lot of Labradors like shaded the color indicating high wind. Um, yeah, so that was a huge challenge, dealing with the wind there, uh, constantly battling waves coming over my canoe. I had some very scary moments crossing big open water. Mm-hmm. You have no choice but to do this because if you try to trace out, play it safe, I mean, you, you can play it safe and follow the lake shore, but the lakes are like a giant paint splatter. There's right. so many bays and inlets that it's going to dramatically increase your overall distance if you constantly hug the shoreline. Or you can roll the dice and cut across the open water and shave off many kilometers from your overall distance. So mm-hmm. I would be doing this, uh, you know, white knuckle open water crossings, battling white caps, uh, huge winds. There were many times of storms. Like storms were just my constant companion. I remember I was racing a lightning storm once. It was coming behind me. I mean, the whole sky, I just accepted that I was never going to see the sun again, that it was just going to rain every single day of my journey because it was just incredible amounts of rain. I had a little baler. I'd be bailing water out of the canoe. The rain would be filling up the canoe faster than I could bail it out. Just heavy, heavy rain. You can see this in some of the photographs on my website. Um, And the sky was just a sea of of gray clouds. But I could see within the sea of gray clouds certain areas where it would be like pitch black. And I'd be like, "Those those are storm clouds in the otherwise sea of gray rain clouds. And the wind would be blowing these clouds. So you could see them moving like quite fast, right? There goes one northeast across the landscape. And I couldn't afford to stop. If I only canoed on good days, I would still be doing the journey right now. Right. Uh, I wouldn't have finished. So I'd be like racing against, oh, there's a storm behind me, but I think it's got an hour or so before it gets here. I can complete another open water crossing before it does. You know, battling wind, waves, lightning, all the familiar hazards from past wilderness journeys. I'd be like, ah, oh, I'm back into the wilderness dealing with black flies, <laughs> whitewater rapids, you know, this kind of thing, bears, tons of bears. I've never seen such a high concentration of black bears uh, than in the interior. Yeah, from the Yukon to British Columbia, northern Ontario, uh, Northwest Territories, everywhere I've been, Alberta, New Brunswick, I've never seen so many black bears as in uh, Labrador's interior. They're just everywhere. Uh For the most part, I found that they were skittish. They didn't want anything to do with me. didn't cost me any trouble. Um, But I sometimes had a challenge about what to do with my food at night because the trees are too small. Um, Putting putting your food in a tree would do nothing. (laughs) It would probably advertise it to the bears because this is subarctic. So the the landscape had transitioned again. Mm -hmm. Now I'm moving beyond the boreal forest. I'm getting far enough north that the trees are starting to thin out and I'm starting to get to discontinuous permafrost. Uh, ice beneath the ground that lasts year round and prevents the trees from taking root. So right. the trees are starting to get stunted. They can still be very old, 400-year-old black spruce, but it's no more than this big. Yeah. And they're little, yeah. so you, you can't put your food in the trees. There are black bears everywhere. So do you have barrels, or what do you, what do you got? Uh, I have one barrel, yeah. but, um, yeah, I would just sort of leave it around my tent. Yeah. And the Hope idea the is, best, yeah. well, I had to keep it close to me because I was so hungry. And I realized I didn't have enough food. Um, 
that I was going to run out of food. So I was trying to catch as much fish as possible, but catching brook trout and things like that, eating fish, just makes you even more of a magnet for any bears in the area. They can smell that fish from a mile away. Now they're all coming. And of course, I, you know, I was traveling light. I didn't have a, I didn't have a frying pan or anything like that. So I'm cooking the fish on willow sticks mm-hmm. over my fire and just eating everything that I can from them. And then I would usually either burn the rest of the fish up in the fire or throw it way out into the river and let the current carry it away so to minimize the scent to bears. Uh, but I was incredibly hungry. I was eating wild mushrooms like bolites, um, any berries I could find. Like as far back as in Quebec, I'd been eating uh, wild plants like blue bead lilies. Mm-hmm. The berries are toxic, but the leaf tastes kind of like a cucumber. Huh. And there's thousands of them all through the boreal forest. So I was eating those. High bush cranberry. Um, as I got farther north, I would find berries from the year before. So the berries at those latitudes don't actually ripen until August. Mm-hmm. But I would be finding the berries from last year, like lingonberries, which mm-hmm. is kind of like a cranberry. And those would actually taste better because they would uh, frozen yeah. over the winter, which taste, takes away some of their tartness. Um, roots, whatever I could eat, munch on, I would do so because I was so hungry towards the end of this journey as I'm working my way north. And as I kept going north, the forest started to thin out mm-hmm. more and more. And then I could start to see actual exposed tundra. The topography as I went north became very mountainous, like large mountains along these rivers. Mm -hmm. And the tops of them are completely Arctic tundra. And the only trees that exist are at the lower slopes. Along the sheltered river valleys, the trees can still flourish. Um, But that's it. So I could see everything transitioning, catching more and more trout Mm -hmm. as I'm going north, working my way beyond the black bears and into the polar bears. Uh, into their territory. Nice. And do we meet polar bears on this journey? Well, you know, what I kept telling myself is I have nothing to worry about. There won't be any polar bears around. Like, theoretically, if you Google polar bear territory in northern Canada, mm-hmm. you'll see this area that I'm on. I'm on the, or heading towards Ungava Bay, Torngat yeah. Mountains. You'll see that entire area shaded in as polar bear habitat. Mm-hmm. But I was like, yeah, but you got to take that with a grain of salt. At this time of year in July those polar bears won't be around because they're probably going to be way out on the ocean on ice flows hunting seals. I mean, seals are the vast majority of their diet. What reason would they have to come inland? Uh, They're going to stay wherever the ice is. So if the ice goes offshore as it melts in the summer, they're probably going to be far away. So I was like, that's what I would tell myself. So I didn't even worry about polar bears. It was not like I had a gun or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had my knife to protect myself and that's pretty much it yeah that'll that'll go well in a fight with a bear a polar bear i'm sure earth's largest land carnivore biggest ones weigh almost two thousand pounds yeah i'm sure that'll work out very well but i wasn't worried at all i would sleep like i was in a five-star hotel my tent was like the world's greatest luxury every night i slept so well um you know and there was almost no level ground i would constantly be sleeping on slopes so like i would roll down my tent sometimes in the night or the ground would be solid rock you know, putting my tent up on solid rock, mm-hmm. or it would just be like uh, little depressions up and down, hummocks and things in the woods, uh, what have you. But I would always sleep really well. You know, it didn't matter. I was so exhausted from 13, 14 hours of traveling that I would just sleep the deep sleep. And I always say, you know, this is one of the relaxing things about doing adventures. Paradoxically, um, you have almost no real stress because you're living in the moment. 
And I think so much of our modern hectic lives, people get stressed out over things that haven't actually happened. We're all constantly worrying about the future. Oh, what's happening in the news? Or, you know, we're addicted to 24-hour news cycles mm-hmm. and social media and all this. And you, you end up getting so stressed out about external things, things in the world at large and things that haven't actually happened. It's very easy to become pessimistic. Mm-hmm. But traveling through the wilderness, I mean, it forces you. You have no choice but to live in the moment. All that matters is what's happening right there that day. You can't worry about what might happen in another week uh, when you're already ha- dealing with hypothermia and bears and whitewater rapids. Mm-hmm. So paradoxically, forcing yourself to read the river to make sure you don't go into that eddy, make sure you don't go over that ledge or that waterfall, um, it, it actually, it's like a tonic. It's just amazing mm-hmm. how it, it's like the way humans were meant to, to live. It just takes all our stress away. And you're sort of embracing the moment. So I never really worried about polar bears. I'm like, they're probably not around. And I slept, fa- slept soundly, not worrying about it. Now, at the very end of my journey, mm-hmm. I got to the Torn Gap Mountains. I hiked into the Torn Gap Mountains. I secured my canoe. I said, don't worry, canoe. I'll be back in a week or so. Uh, you, and I left behind everything I didn't need, took my backpack. I tied the canoe up to a tree because I was like, well, water levels are really, really high. I can see that everywhere because of all the wet weather. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I don't think the water level will rise any higher. But if it does and it sweeps away my canoe, I'll be stranded in the mountains. So I tied it up to a spruce tree. Mm-hmm. Then I hiked off on foot into the Torngat Mountains, which are spectacular. I mean, it seems like something out of... Uh, a legend, right? This otherworldly landscape. Uh, <laughs> highest peak in mainland continental Canada, east of the Rockies, is in the Torngats. And that's where the falcons like to nest. So I went to go look for a falcon nest. Oh, uh, nice. <clears throat> when I found myself a falcon nest, I photographed it, filmed it, yeah. watched the falcons for a bit, and it was a surreal moment. It made me reflect on everything I'd come across from Toronto to Niagara Falls to Montreal. But then I returned on foot eventually. Uh, made it back to the river in my canoe, and then from there, I had only a short distance to go before the river turned salty. I could I could taste the salt water on my paddle strokes, the little Amazing. waves coming up, and uh, I could smell it on the the wind. And then it's like true quintessential Arctic. Uh, beyond that, you have uh, fjords on the Ungava coast, and nothing but permafrost. So it's all Arctic tundra. No more trees. You have all the characteristic Arctic species, you know, barren ground caribou, Arctic fox, Arctic swans or tundra swans, Beautiful. and polar bears and beluga whales. So I'm canoeing on the Arctic Ocean at this point, and it's crystal clear. I mean, you can see like 50 feet down. Amazing. Every once in a while, my heart would beat really fast because I would see as I'm canoeing on the Arctic Ocean in the clear water, this huge white object like the size of a car down below. And you'd think, oh, polar bear, uh, Ursus maritimus, yeah, yeah. maritime bear, there it is, coming right underneath my thing. Yeah. And it'd be terrifying because it's like if a polar bear, I mean, they're amazing swimmers. They amazing. can swim faster yeah. than it's possible to canoe, right? They're incredibly fast. They spend most of their lives on ice or in the water. And I'm like, oh, if one is under the water, all it has to do, it's like it just with a flip of its paw, I'm, I'm a sitting duck, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to fall into this water. But luckily, I'd look careful, and it's like it's just a big boulder, these big white boulders yeah. uh, on the bottom of the, the sea, and they're distorted by the looking through the water and make it look like a polar bear swimming around down there. And I ended my journey, you know, when I got to the coast there, I had planned that I was going to end in this little tiny Inuit community, uh, Kangosolajak, mm-hmm. which is right on the coast of Ungava Bay. Uh, so my last night, I camped. Uh, I had to get above the mudflats, above uh, low tide line there, or high tide mark, put up my tent, and I could see the lights of the community on the horizon, 
Next day, I paddled along with the outgoing tide uh, right at the fjord there. I landed at Kango Swallowjack. Um, right off the bat, as soon as I landed, there was a guy in a pickup truck just above the boat launch, a little muddy boat launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, he introduced himself as Willie. And like everyone else, he showed me nothing but kindness. He said, uh, oh, where'd you come from? I explained very briefly. First, he said, you know, where's the rest of your party? Because he thought, you know, it must be eight or ten people coming down. I said, just me. And he gave me a ride into town, um, into the little community there. And as we're riding in, you know, we were talking about my journey and some of the adventures and wildlife I, I had encountered along the way. And I said to Willie, I said, ah, you know, I wasn't really worried about polar bears um, because there were a lot of black bears, but I thought, you know, I had nothing to worry about polar bears uh, because at this time of year when the ice melts, they're not around. They'll all be far offshore on ice flows. And he just kind of looked over at me and smiled and chuckled to himself. And I said, oh, what? He's like, oh, at this time of year, all the polar bears go right up river to where you were. <laughs> He's like, when the ice melts, they can't hunt seals, so they go up river to catch salmon. And I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, just, he's like, just the other week, just last week, I saw two big polar bears. Everyone in the community was like a a stir because two big polar bears were swimming upriver. And I was like, wow, so they were right where I was (laughs) upriver. I'm like, I felt very lucky that I hadn't known that because if I had, I never would have swept well at all. In fact, if somebody had told me beforehand, actually, you're going like where all the polar bears are going to be, then I probably wouldn't have done the journey. I'd be like, okay, well, that's kind of crazy. Um, and I'm like, wow, but did they ever attack anyone? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he told me all these polar bear attack stories. So that worked out well, that that didn't happen. And then I spent a week in the community uh, before flying south to Montreal. Wow, strap it all on a, on a bush plane and head home. Actually, I gave the canoe to Willie. Did you? Oh, nice. Yes. Well, I thought there's no way I'm going to yeah. transport this canoe all the way home. Yeah. And uh, he was nice enough to me. And I said, yeah, this looks like someone who can give this canoe a good home. We've been through a lot together. So that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. I mean, this is a very different trip in a lot of ways than you usually do. I mean, what's your, what's your takeaway from it? Like what? Well, I think there are a few things I took away from it. I mean, as I already said, um, my forte was wilderness journeys to the most isolated and remote places far off the beaten track where there's no trails, there's no paths, nothing of any kind. So I would like to say I was social distancing before it became mainstream. My specialty was going out into the wilderness <laughs> for weeks or months at a time without even seeing another human being. You know, not even usually seeing any human objects, not even so much as a pop can or a cigarette butt. And that is always what has fired me uh, to do these adventures. I love those truly untouched wild places which are becoming ever rarer in our world. Um, Just the human pressure on the planet is increasing more and more. So that's what I always loved, getting to those truly remote wilderness wild places. This journey was fundamentally different than that. I had never encountered so many people before. I mean, places like Toronto and Montreal was incredibly busy. Thousands of people out walking or cycling. And here I am right in the heart of everything. And I felt it a little bit uncomfortable at times to be canoeing. Like in Montreal, uh, what is it, Parc Dieppe? There were like a thousand, thousands of people along the pier there looking at me, watching me. <laughs> she people had warned me. They said, well, they said, you can't canoe under there. There's rapids and things. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. It's going to be like a peace bridge. And I'm like, if I've miscalculated, there'll be thousands of people watching this <laughs> with their phones, recording this to testify to my utter foolishness. And there ends the career of Adam Schultz. Idiot. You will be an Instagram <laughs> yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was totally different. But what I found is that, you know, this was the most rewarding and enriching part of my journey is that encountering all of these strangers, total strangers, had no idea who I am. I don't know who they are. Uh, they showed me nothing but kindness, goodwill, 
an encouragement. And many times, like, you know, they would offer me things. I'd say, oh, I, I have everything I need. I don't need anything. And they'd say, oh, I feel bad that I couldn't do anything for you. And I'd say, you already have done something for me. Just encountering people, you have no idea how they're going to react. Uh, but every time they would say, like, you know, good on you, and they would say, you know, all the best, um, that would put new wind in my sails or new spring in my step. Uh, just receiving people's well wishes and uh, having them cheering me on, uh, it really warms the, he- the heart and does the soul good. Nice. And just all this kindness from different people uh, made me much more optimistic and, you know, really brightened my outlook on the, on the state of the world. And I think, you know, it's so easy nowadays to become cynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, again, if we have to get away from our laptops and our social media and people may breed cynicism, but you realize the vast majority of people are actually good, good, kind-hearted people. Um, and the, when you, you know, go back to some old-fashioned travel, it's a great uh, tonic for a, a cynical worldview because you realize, ah, oh, no, you know, the vast majority of people are actually uh, kind, caring, and good-natured, mm-hmm. only, only too willing to help out a stranger or a traveler. Yeah. And that was something I saw literally from Lake Erie to the Arctic coast. Every single person I met, I didn't meet a single person. I say this in all honesty. I did not meet a single person who sh- showed me anything other than kindness. Um, anytime, awesome. yeah. And so that was probably the most rewarding thing. The other thing was the wild places, even in the heart of our biggest cities. I mean, I was astonished that right around Montreal, you have a lot of uh, protected space, uh, protected bird migration areas. And I was like, you know, this is what's so special about Canada. We have to hold on to these wild places right Mm -hmm. on our doorsteps because they're crucially interconnected. I mean, understandably, in in recent years, we've heard a lot about the need to protect the Arctic's uh, pristine spaces. Mm -hmm. But we can't protect uh, the Arctic without protecting wild places in southern Canada. Uh, because it's all interconnected. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of animals in the Arctic are, in fact, birds, migratory birds by the thousands, tens of thousands. And the vast majority of Arctic bird species, um, like 97%, migrate south. But they need somewhere to migrate to. They can't nest in a Walmart parking lot yeah. uh, or even necessarily in suburbia. Uh, they need those protected green spaces in southernmost Canada. So when we protect nature in the south, we're at the same time, helping protect it in the north. And it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's what's really fascinating. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. some of these birds go as far away as Argentina, uh, Brazil, the Amazon. And it's like, wow, this is a reminder of how interconnected wild places are all over the world and how we all have sort of our duty to do to protect these places, uh, to ensure that they have a future. And I just think there's something magical about um, no matter where you live in the country, being able to step out your door and within a short walk, uh, even if it's, you know, the Scarborough Bluffs or the Toronto Islands or the green space around uh, the Burlington Skyway, you have these wild places to remind us of, 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 of where we've come from and uh, of what it means uh, to be human, to go out there, you know, to get away from it all, to unplug. I think it's a real tonic in our, in our modern lives to have these places. So those are the, my two big takeaways, uh, the importance of those wild places on our doorsteps. I mean, if I was the... Pr- I, wasn't, I was going to say if I was the prime minister, but maybe it would be better to be a premier for this. But who cares? Yeah. Uh, the idea is, is that I would make that my policy, that no matter where you live, everyone should have at least one nature park yeah. within a 15-minute walk yeah. of their residence. And I think that that's the key. Yes, it's great to have places like Algonquin or Banff or, or what have you, where you get in a car and you drive. But I think it's crucial that we have them within a 15-minute walk of wherever, mm-hmm. wherever you live. Just like we think of schools or hospitals as critical infrastructure, I think we have to start thinking of green space as critical infrastructure 
that it's essential to our physical and mental health or our well-being, and that it's critical that people have them in their neighborhood. It shouldn't be like I have to get in a car and drive an hour to get to a nature spot or, or a wild place because that fundamentally changes the dynamic. Right. Um, there's something special about actually just being able to walk out your door and it's right there. Um, it gives you a deeper sense of connection. Yeah. Uh, it pulls on your heartstrings and it becomes your particular place where you can see birds or other wildlife and you start to get to know it, right? That's not just some tree. That's the old grandfather oak, uh, the oldest white oak in the park. You know, that one's been for, there for 300 years. Imagine if trees could tell stories, the stories it might tell. Yeah. And then you really get attached to it. And I think it's essential that every one of the 38 million Canadians has a place like that. And yeah. uh, many of us are very lucky that we get to live in rural areas or small towns where we all have that in abundance. But I think it's really important with our cities growing more and more, Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal and all the rest, Calgary, um, that we hold on to that green space in and around the cities. Well, thank you for doing this journey, Adam, and sharing and sharing it and reminding us of the importance of all these places, you know, remote or closer to home. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, it was my pleasure, too. So thank you very much. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to Canadian Geographic, one of Canada's truly great magazines. You can do that at canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. And if you like this podcast, can you please do us a big favor? Give us a five-star rating where you listen and write a glowing review as well. It all helps to feed the algorithm, which brings more listeners to these interviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for all of that. Until next time, when we'll explore again. I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left about Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us.